0: Welcome to Storytelling with Seth, a place where I honestly and as authentically as possible attempt to share with you stories I discover. Some of them are in the news, some of them are a bit of word of mouth or something whispered in the ear, and others are those rare opportunities where I get the chance to sit down with someone and talk to them about their story and in turn share it with you. I really hope you enjoy every story here on Storytelling with Seth, but there's really only one way I can know, and that's if you let me know. If you're using the Anchor platform to listen to this, you can go ahead and leave me a voice message, and I'd be happy to share it on this podcast. However, you can also reach out to me through email at sethsingleton at gmail.com, as well as on various social media platforms like Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm at one more singleton or on Facebook Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please feel free to reach out on the platform you feel the most comfortable with so that I can hear what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, so that together we can share our stories with each other. And now that I've given you an idea of what this is and what to expect, the only thing now or the only thing left to do now is to tell a story. Let's get started, shall we? Depending on when you're listening to this, it's either the beginning, the middle, the end, or many days after your Memorial Day weekend. And for this Memorial Day weekend edition of the Weekly Wrap, I thought I'd take a quick look at some of the things about storytelling that really make it so compelling when it works and also some moments when a storyteller tries to get your attention and in the process they lose not only their goal but their attempt to use a story in order to share their message. This week's episode includes a look at a reinvented version of Charlie Brown that I learned about simply through a discussion with another writer and reviewer a look at an article that attempts to talk about what Shakespeare would be writing about in Washington, but appears to miss its mark as the opening of that suggestion moves away from the idea of Shakespeare and Washington and moves into something that falls into a religious ideology and belief in an attempt to frame the current environment in Washington. You'll have to let me know whether or not you agree with my assessment. And also, why the Internet hasn't killed off books, despite the revolution of the digital age and its effect on similar components like VHS, DVDs, audio cassettes, and CDs. And lastly, a look at a concept that suggests that these action movies that we love when they're done in a certain way, and with a certain attention to detail and a recognition of history, become more than just rote movements that films like the new John Wick 3 Parabellum, the two previous versions of those movies, as well as the history of movies that they are following in the footsteps of, are about a story that is more than just one narrative and action added to it, but actually a story in which the action is the story, and how a history of Wuxia that dates back not only to Jackie Chan, Jet Li, and Bruce Lee films, or to the more recent modernization of Gun Fu, but to a literary tradition that dates all the way back to the King Dynasty. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Weekly Wrap. Whether it's on your Memorial Day weekend days off, or the days following when you have the chance to recover, absorb, and reflect. It's time for this week's edition of The Weekly Wrap. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, right here on Storytelling with Seth. Let's get started. Now this one involves a little bit of a twist. A little bit of a transition, if you will. Simply to suggest the possibility that what we know is not all that we know, and that many of the things we find on the surface actually have more depth than we might have originally imagined. I'm talking today about the John Wick franchise and an article that was published in Film, the website, titled The Poetic Action Storytelling of the John Wick Franchise. And it's a really interesting look at how the John Wick movies, which are now in their third, and the third of which Parabellum recently knocked off Avengers for highest opening sales, are about a character who has suffered great loss, and in doing so, returned to a violent destructive lifestyle that has consequences and those consequences require one and now a second sequel and they're extremely highly recognized for their extremely highly recognized that's a fun statement they're very well regarded and highly recognized for stylistic action stylistic gunfighting and other violent Excellence, <laughs> but how beyond that? There's more to it than simply a prop up character and mindless action. Instead, the uh, the acting and the coordination between Keanu Reeves and director Chad Stahelski attempt to do something bigger. And they start out in this article by addressing this idea that. Jackie Chan said something once, which was that the audience doesn't know the rhythm is there until it's not there. And this is according to a video by Tony Zhu in a film he did called Every Frame a Painting, examining how the editing and camera angles can define how audiences experience an action scene. And the rhythm that's being described is echoed in films by Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, Jet Li, and on into other very popular Action films. And the first reference uh, back to this quote is about how Jackie Chan encouraged many choreographers, directors like Stahelski, to go watch dance, make it more like dance, and to be conscious of that. Um, And then it moves into a discussion about this idea of gunfu, a buzzword that they kind of represents uh, this combination of Japanese jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, tactical three-gun, and standing judo, but also that has its roots in something that's much deeper, tying back to the uh, 90s bloodshed movies by John Woo and preceded by the Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan uh, martial arts movies and what is known as the Chinese genre of wuxia which is considered to be the backbone of Hong Kong cinema, not only through its aesthetics, but also through its narrative, and that it's actually a literary genre that dates all the way back to the Qing dynasty. Basically, it's an amalgam of the ancient Yuxia fiction, which follows wandering folk heroes who help commoners in need. But wuxia has a modern footing, and it's about characters who are marked by, and stories marked by, operatic set pieces, fantastical fight sequences, and that the overall production resembles more of a dance than it does an actual fight. Many of the gravity-defying sequences that define Wuxia were revolutionized by Wu, and also by one of the rising stars known as Chow Yun-Fat, who brought many of these elements to prominence in the highly regarded Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Many of these elements include uh Chow Yun-Fat using two guns instead of ones, an extensive use of slow motion, and how this later came to play a role in films like The Matrix, Ghost in the Shell, and Akira. And essentially, that by looking at these films, you can see how so many of these examples, either from Game of Death, The Martial Arts Hit, The Martial Arts Hit, The Raid, or even others like Villainess, that there is a reference to inspirations from Greek myths, classic silent films, even acrobatic Buster Keaton has an influence. So what does this mean exactly? Are all action movies brilliant, amazing, wonderful? Perhaps not. But that doesn't mean that they are all lumped into the same category without any possibility of having greater differentiation. Examples that fall into that category might be something more like the Mission Impossible or Mad Max Fury Road movie. Essentially, those movies offer great operatic and staging for their action sequences, but at the same time, they are not like the Wuxia because those elements are not part of the story. Tony Zhu comes back to his Every Framing and Painting video and points out that in these types of films, the Wuxia, action is the comedy, action is the story in John Wick, action is the basis for these films not a byproduct or some other side component. This is not a love story, this is not any of these other things, this is an action movie and these are the elements that create the action and why they're so important. There's a lot more involved with reading this uh, article. I really think it does a great job of going into the history of Wuxia, the history of film and the way it's addressed the evolution of action, and also how you can see a lot of this in the more recent versions of the John Wick movies, whether it's the first, chapter two, or whether you're heading into the theaters to catch John Wick 3, Parabellum. What you're seeing is a movie dedicated to this idea behind action as the story, and I love the concept of saying this is not a type of movie that includes action but instead says this is a movie that focuses on the action and that tells its story through the action because it's actually the action that is the story. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word From our sponsor. I love stumbling into a great story. I also love stumbling into a great story that makes me smile. And I love it when the stumbling is encouraged by someone else who, based on our discussions, has led me to believe that we have a shared understanding and one that will allow us to recognize when there is something we both might enjoy or that one of us has already enjoyed, and believes the other will enjoy also. I'm giving a shout-out to Mr. Derek McNeil from over at DC Comics News, who joined me for a short chat discussion where we were talking about a theme that has come up on more than one occasion, and it has to do with Batman and the Tom King Batman run that features Kite Man. Kite Man is one of those rare characters, the kind who is kind of hapless and hopeless, and yet at the same time, can play a very interesting role, and in the hands of a great writer, can have a very engaging storyline. And while that can be always interesting, and clearly by the grumble snorings of my French bulldog, Bruno, his interest level is different than mine. But my interest comes when Key elements of the story mirror elements that we've come to recognize in characters from our childhood. Kite Man, whose real name is Charles Brown, is something of a failure. Someone with a little less tact might say that he is a failure, a complete failure, and the ending to his story in the current Batman run might suggest that that was true. However... During the telling of his story, many of the elements that come to define Kite Man, Charles Brown, are actually things that show that his ending might be the perfect ending for a character who's faced so many struggles. Now, in so many ways, like characters we've all come to know, Charles Brown is actually based on a character named Charlie Brown. In the history of American comic strips, Charlie Brown was the legendary character created by Charles Scholes, who, along with his compatriot Snoopy and a cast of friends, set about on a series of adventures that often led to failure or frustration. Charlie Brown was the poor kid who never seemed to get it right, who never seemed to get things done the way he wanted to, who always seemed to try his hardest only to come up short. This was often epitomized with his experience trying to kick a football for a kickoff or goal scenario, and in the situation it's his childhood friend slash nemesis, Lucy, holding the football, and every time Charlie lines up for that kick, and approaches to make connection with the ball and send it skyward, it's Lucy who yanks it away, each and every time, causing Charlie to swing, miss, fall on his back, and scream out a pathetic, "agh" cry. Charlie Brown is, in many ways, the basis for the Charles Brown character, of Kite Man in the Tom King Batman run. And his continued try, try, try again, only to be met with failure and mockery cements that connection between the childhood character of Charlie Brown and this grown-up Kite Man named Charles Brown. Now, this all leads to something really fun for me, which is when Mr. McNeil from DC Comics News lets me know that this is not the only version of an adult Charles Brown, to which he then points out to me that there is a great comic available on whatisdeepfried.com called Weapon Brown. Weapon Brown is also available on Amazon, and according to its website description, it is 416 pages of Weapon Brown action. Essentially, the character, Chuck, is a bitter and luckless ex-super soldier, flying both a haunted past and the grip of his creators, the tyrannical syndicate. Together, Chuck and his faithful mutt, Snoop, must battle demon pumpkins, slaggardly catworms, cannibal cavemen, and a host of other famous freaks from the funny papers, all leading to an ultimate showdown where the identity of history's greatest cartoon duo will be settled by blood, either a man and his dog, or a boy and his tiger. Now, I enjoyed reading another very popular comic strip that came along after Charlie Brown, and in many ways identified with the generation that I was growing up in. If you think you catch an allusion to that comic strip, well, I would agree with you if you're saying that it's Calvin and Hobbes, which, if we're both right, sounds like a really fun final climactic showdown between two iconic boy and his pet characters. The uh, Weapon Brown story was a 10-year project by an artist named Jason Youngbluth and is available, uh, as I mentioned, on What is Deep Fried and Amazon. And it's an indie comic. It's a series that's been collected and includes a lot of bonus material. And for the most part, I really had to just chuckle that after all of our conversations, after seeing some conversations initially, when Kite Man and his story were making the rounds on their first printings and the discussions that came with them. And then later when I read it myself, how this really interesting idea led to such a really great story and a really compelling character. The only thing left for me is that this feels so much like a great story of reinvention that I enjoyed when I was taking a reinvention class at California College of the Arts and how it continued to challenge the idea that what we've been told is the only way the stories we've learned can be told and that as writers we have an opportunity if we find it, if we discover it, if we can see our way in and reveal it to others to change those stories, to make them fresh and new and tell them through our eyes for a new audience that might hopefully engage with them the same way we did as well. And I know that at some point, I will get my hands on Weapon Brown. I will share my experience with you. And when I do, I hope that I'm reminded, as always, about just how great it is to have a conversation with someone that understands what you might enjoy and can point you to something new that, if you do enjoy You can share not only with the person who introduced it to you, but also with someone who you have an opportunity to introduce it to as well. That's my little snippet on Weapon Brown. I'm looking forward to sharing more when I get the chance to dig into its pages. In the meantime, if you get a chance to check out Jason Youngbluth, What is Deep Fried, or Weapon Brown, please reach out to me here, On Anchor, through voice messages, or just tag me, Seth Singleton Storyteller, on your favorite form of social media. Really, I'd like to hear what you have to say, because you might get to it before I do, and that could be just as much a part of the fun as me sharing it with you right now. Every once in a while, I find myself coming across a story that I think is going to take me one place, and winds up taking me somewhere else completely. And in the same turn, I often find myself intending to agree with the story or look for the ways that I can, only to find that the story has created a disagreement for me and one that I can't help but point out. In this instance, I was drawn to a story with a great headline, if Shakespeare were writing from Washington. From the Hillsdale Daily News... Available on Hillsdale.net. And as I dug in, I loved the introduction. Imagining Shakespeare writing from Washington. Presidential contenders. A high dungeon. But by the end of the first paragraph, it loses me. Especially when it makes a suggestion about accusations that fly like arrows in a Peter Jackson movie. Now granted, Peter Jackson's movies are great. And when the arrows fly, it's it's a pretty impressive moment. But the reference to arrows makes me think more of the movie 300. Or to wonder why this wouldn't be the opportunity to make a reference to Macbeth that occurs a few paragraphs later. But the article, which I think originally I believed was an article and turns out to be more of an opinion piece, goes on to use great references like Hamlet-like duplicities and King Lear-like bouts of self-pity, Katharina-like egos, and Richard-like self-absorption. And then it moves away from this by suggesting that what's really needed and what's rare is a quiet person acting deliberately for good that the four-year struggle for power is a part of our system of government and that it's not unique to our system and this is something we can see in the struggles of someone like Theresa May in UK or Julius Caesar or Jesus and this is the part where the article starts to lose me because the next four or five paragraphs begin to discuss the possibility and the history of Jesus as a vocal critic of the establishment and how gradually this led to conflict. But then it moves into a uh, different narrative that begins to address the response of the religious establishment at the time, one of the groups of which there were two, the Pharisees and Sadducees, Uh, called the Pharisees and their response with this idea of, of the word furious and how it's a Greek word that means without thought and how it represents a hostility to him. And really, for the rest of the opinion piece, I'm waiting to come back to that moment when Shakespeare will be referred to again. And it doesn't happen. Instead, it mentions that, in the end, Christians must learn to think of Jesus and the power that he did as a quiet force. And yet, in no way, does it come back to the fact that when Shakespeare was writing, he often did give that quiet voice an opportunity to tell its story. For example, one of my favorites is when King Lear, who... In a moment of arrogance, brings about the judgment of not only his fairest daughter, Cortilia, but of his other daughters as well. He leaves behind the throne and becomes poor Tom, a sad beggar, fool of a character, wandering through the streets listening to his people talk about him and to learn the effect of his rule. Other characters have popped up in Shakespeare's literature who have been kind and thoughtful and good of heart, and they're not treated well. And as I think more about this article, I think if Shakespeare were writing about Washington, there would be a character who would be good and kind and working towards all the values that Christianity tries to espouse. But that when that occurred, this character would not be seen as pleasant or good and in many ways would probably work best if it were to be effective to be seen as the fool who in most of Shakespeare's plays was the wisest character trying to point out all of the things that were either going wrong or would be going wrong and who was rarely listened to but often was the source of truth and the one who could prophesy the eventual downfalls that were often suggested or hinted at at the beginning or later stages of Shakespeare's plays. I love a good narrative that brings me in and asks me to consider the past and the future, which is why I really enjoyed talking earlier about the story about Weapon Brown and (laughs) recasting Charlie Brown, this beloved character from my childhood, in a much more difficult, violent, challenging version set in the modern day. And yet, something like this article, this opinion piece that attempts to suggest the idea of Shakespeare and what it would be like if he were writing about Washington, misses the mark by moving the conversation into one about a religious figure without ever actually bringing in how that figure would have been represented in a a play written by Shakespeare, and how, without that, this discussion of what Shakespeare writing about Washington would be like seems to be a, a false introduction, something that says it's going to talk about something great, and instead chooses talking about something else completely, without allowing any sort of inference or hint in the title or elsewhere, except after the first few introductory paragraphs, that this is something that will in any way be talked about. And then at the end, to not bring it all back to the idea of Shakespeare, it feels like an incomplete Story and one that, while I often choose to pass up in this moment, felt like a great example of how, when we make a promise to readers to invite them in to read something we've written, that we not only have the opportunity to do that, but we also are making the obligation or making the suggestion that we will fulfill our obligation, which is to not only make the suggestion but to follow through by keeping up our end of it and not just make the suggestion in the title but either raise it or attempt to answer the questions that come with it. In this instance, I felt neither occurred which is disappointing because based on its premise this could have been a really enjoyable article and one that I hope is a reminder for me that when I'm writing, when I'm telling stories to set things up is to make a promise that I will eventually show why I've set them up this way. And it reminds me of that great example that's always expressed about Chekhov, in which he says, If you begin a story, and there's a gun on top of the dresser, by the end of the story, you must use that gun. Otherwise, you have done a disservice to your readers. Now, I'm paraphrasing, and probably greatly, and maybe even completely butchering that quote, But I believe in the end that that suggestion is one that all writers should keep in mind and that this example has driven home for me because I know what I was hoping and expecting and I know the disappointment I felt when neither of those things came true by the story's end. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. If you've been around long enough, there is a feeling of predictability when it comes to certain events and our ability to understand them. And then, just like the best things in life, there comes a surprise. And this story is about one of those surprises that we are presently witnessing, and one that we're lucky enough to look at hopefully through a long enough lens to appreciate the lessons it can tell us and also why it's important for us to be aware of moments when we think that our predictability has given us an understanding, when in reality, it's just given us a context in which to understand when and why unpredictability can, will, and should keep occurring, at least That last part's my opinion. I'm talking about an article in a site called Wiza. Wiza.com. And it's out of Australia. And it's, without going too deep into, is a website dedicated to printed books and the observations this site has made through 150 interviews with bookshops, publishers, bloggers library assistance, as well as 750 responses to an online questionnaire, and a series of other technical data. And what they've come up with is the fact that books aren't going anywhere, and it raises the question, why hasn't the internet or digital or everything combined together removed this very old format? from existence. And they came up with a few answers that I thought were very telling. And the first is that paper books circulate better than digital books do, and they follow the, the life of a book after it is sold originally, either in a bookshop or online, and how it moves through places like, oh say, secondhand bookstores. Or through apps like one called Book Crossing that allows you to either follow books that are abandoned or set free or to recycle them through second-hand book websites like uh, Recycle Lever. There's also yard sales, antiques fairs, book markets, which combine to give books a second, third, fourth, or in many kinds, simply a new life. And that the book, as it's material, is physical, is allowed to live on in a way that is not evidenced. At least through their data, in digital books. And it's interesting because, based on the physical structure of a book, and they point to its weight, its volume, and the physical space it requires... Why is it that the book has not gone the way of the dinosaur, like the CD or VHS and DVD, just like the audio cassette? This part catches my attention because I live in a small apartment, as is the case when you are in San Francisco Bay Area. And part of the trade-off for that is that space becomes very limited, and at some point my wife and I, have in the past and do on occasion still have to purge, have to clean out what simply doesn't fit or we can no longer make space for. And sometimes that includes books. And oftentimes it's books that came through for a class or another purpose and while I enjoyed I recognize that if I'm not still reading them, then they don't have a continued life with me. They need to be passed on, shared on to someone else. And this is interesting also to me, because despite this, there are still times when I pick up a new book, or a few books, (laughs) a few comic books even, and find space for them, always looking at the space that I have and creating a negotiation. When do I need to get rid of something, and how long can I keep buying new things when I'm running out of space in the process? Now... I also enjoy that this article points to a few things that lie outside of the physical aspects of books as far as their limitations but comes back to the positive points that can be really enjoyable. For example, the the pleasure of a physical item with a cover, the context of the pages. Um, It's nice when someone offers you a digital book or a collection of them on a USB stick, but it doesn't offer the same context. And it doesn't give the owner, the person holding the book, the chance to sort of dig in the same way they can with a physical book. But the book also stays alive because it has a community that keeps it alive. And this article does a great job of following up and addressing that there is a thriving network online and in many formats that allows books to be part of our modern discussion despite their 500-year-old technique and that groups or forums like Orange Network Library, um, Babileo, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and even... Uh, video, like YouTube sensation, 9 Gorman. I know that when I am looking around about a book or curious about responses to books, I've gone to a website called Goodreads, and I know that there is a thriving community, and it's actually a place that's been recommended to more than a few writers to develop an identity and an audience as part of their process for promoting their book. And the power of these groups are really kind of evident simply by the reference that is made to them and the experience of those who've shared on them. Um, They also make a point of bringing up the fact that there are newer sites like Wattpad or Hypothesis that are pushing this sort of approach in a new direction. Essentially, the point of this article is to show all these different reasons and ways that the book continues to maintain relevance, and why and how it thrives, despite seeing many of its analog counterparts falling to the wayside when a digital option is made available. Simply put, a recreation of a book in a digital form does not recreate the experience of having a physical book. And the access to that book is not changed simply because it's made digital or analog, but the experience of holding it is what changes the context for the reader. Kind of went off on my own thing on that last part there. But overall, I love the way this article brought up these great points to support how and why books are still around and what makes them resilient, but also because it created an opportunity for me to dwell on the fact that, yeah, books are still relevant to me. And as much as I would love to say that, you know, convenience and other factors have made the digital an option that I turn to for the most part, when it comes to sitting down and just enjoying a book, there's nothing like holding one in my hands. There's nothing like the experience I had as a child doing that and the way it's echoed now as an adult. I'll make sure that I've got a copy of that link so you can check out this story for yourself. And if you have a theory or something to add on this discussion about why it is, books are still sticking around. Love for you to share in a comment, tag me, storytelling with Seth or leave me a voice message on Anchor, or, you know, however you choose to do it, your favorite. And that's this week's edition of The Weekly Wrap. Thanks for joining me as I journey through these ideas regarding classic characters like Charlie Brown when they've been reinvented. What happens when a story tries to talk about Shakespeare and Washington, but ends up talking about something else completely? What also happens when we recognize that books are going to survive longer than we thought and may be one of the few resistors to the digital transformation occurring to all the analog things around us? And finally, this really interesting look at how John Wick and similar films have redefined action and created this genre of wuxia, Gun fu, and a place where action is the storytelling. It's a really great idea that I'm going to continue to come back to as I can see more elements of it existing, evolving, and either demonstrating or representing this newer form of storytelling. And a final clip, uh, I'm going to let you know that The next edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, which you can find me hosting on a weekly basis over at DC Comics News, is not going to be a solo edition this time around. I'll be joined by DC Comics News writer-reviewer Ari Bard, and for this edition, we'll both get a chance to share our top five comic book picks from DC Comics, And you'll get to hear us both make our claims and pitches on why and share our responses in discussion as we learn and share with each other. Hope you get a chance to check us out. Feel free to look for a link here or just go to your favorite podcast platform, look for the DC Comics News Podcast, subscribe, and you can catch me every week, either on the Spinner Rack or most weeks on the DC Comics News Podcast. Look forward to... Hearing you hear me then and hearing from you on social media what your thoughts, comments, questions, or other responses might be. You can always tag me, Seth Singleton Storyteller, or using your favorite way to let me know on your favorite platform just what it is you think I should hear. Thanks for joining me on another edition of The Weekly Wrap. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, right here on Storytelling with Seth So thank you again for listening And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording And you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe Or just tell a friend Well thank you for that too